Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with my friend Mariam Lamb. Mariam, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And Mariam is not only a friend of many years standing, although we've barely seen one another for no, ages. No, like five years. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been friends for eight years. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's been an event somehow. Is that how long you've been here? Eight years now? It'll be eight years in July. Wow. And Mariam is also a colleague in that she is at the University of California, Riverside. But despite that, or it's not because of that, let's say, <laughs> that we're having this conversation, it's because I've wanted to secure her as a guest, as it were, for a long time, and then finally we found the opportunity to do it. So I'm excited. So Mariam, tell us about what you're up to now. I know you just got back from DC, so what were you doing in Washington? That was an annual Association for Asian American Studies conference. I mean, I'm hired at UCR to be a Southeast Asianist, but I was trained quite a bit in ethnic studies as well, so um, I try to keep my foot in both doors. And they just had really good programming this year around arts and culture and um, lit and some partnerships with the Smithsonian, some literary organizations, and I I just, perhaps I liked it because I attended a lot more of the cultural activities and events, and they gave out some nice awards to deserving people and such. Now, what is Asian Studies in the United States? Well, Asian Studies is a different association that is usually the month before Asian American Studies, so that organization is, you know, I'm sure your listeners will agree is a bit drier a conference and um, you know still somewhat historical um, political history and then the kind of lit and culture they do is much more sort of traditional film studies literary studies Uh um, and Asian American studies as an association is obviously different in that it's somewhat focused on the United States Right. It's becoming more transnational and global in the last, I'd say, 15, 10, 15 years or so, and also at its inception in the 70s and such. But there was a big period in between where it was very much about claiming America. And um, But the nice thing is these days, Asian American studies and American studies and American ethnic studies are all, critical ethnic studies are all linking up nicely, finally, I feel like. So it's, it's easier to keep, uh, you know, to stay part of all three sort of areas, areas where I felt like I was constantly pushing up against three walls when I was going through the training. So 50% of your audience is outside the United States mm-hmm. in 50 countries. So one of the things that may be puzzling to people is the whole notion of area studies, sure. which is a United States invention <laughs> and is used to a certain extent elsewhere. But in terms of um, people in uh, Asia more generally, I mean, uh-huh where you spent a lot of time, um, do, is it academically a concept, area studies, in the way that it is here? Oh, say? sure, it is. And I mean, even in the UK, area studies is done slightly differently than in the US, right? And I just did this stint last fall, or two, maybe two falls ago now, in Singapore, and it was fascinating to me how differently people do area studies in the US, especially around Asian studies. Um, as compared to how they do it in Asia, because in Asia you get very, or much less so of the U.S. scholarship, and you get much more British, Australian, and Asian scholarship, and there's a different kind of respect lent to the Asian scholars that you don't find here. I mean, you get sort of Asian scholars who are activists as well as, um, you know, politicos and 
academics as well. And of course, they don't get exactly the same kind of legitimacy and appreciation in the U.S. So I'd love to keep my you know foot in those two doors too, just to sure. feel more well-rounded about how to do area studies in different locations. And is English the lingua franca normally, or no? Yeah, these days for the scholarship it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So tell us about the stint in Singapore. That was a senior, I don't feel very senior, but it was a senior research residency around the, the second monograph project I'm working on around Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, and sort of media circulation, uh, new forms of kind of global capital post-Cold War redevelopment um, period. So it's scratching the surface a bit on Cambodia and Laos because I feel like those are sort of underrepresented scholarly areas, and they're not my areas of specialty, but I've it's you know a kind of intellectual affirmative action I guess that I've been trying to craft in the last few years and it's I'm working with notions of kind of regionalist activism in terms of um, combining kind of global economic capitalist um, late capitalist redevelopment politics with notions of intellectual scholarly activism uh -huh. and then how they're doing it regionally. I mean, actually, Gayatri Gopinath has been writing about this in her newer work and I've only seen her give a couple talks about it, but I'm kind of interested because other scholars in Asia have been doing a lot of this kind of work for the last decade and so I'm trying to put them into conversation with one another. Now, we hear quite a bit about the rapid economic development in Vietnam, mm -hmm. which, for example, listeners may be interested to know, now provides about a third of TV sets for the United States, a third from China, a third from... <laughs> Ikea uh, planters. And... Right, a, a third from Mexico, and also lots of animation uh -huh. that's done for Hollywood films and so on, is, is partially done in Vietnam, lots of other things too. But Laos and Cambodia are not as much on the map in yeah, terms of precisely. speaking, talking and discussion. Why is that? Well, the post-Cold War devastation is quite different in the three countries. I mean, Vietnam continued to war into Cambodia in 1979. Um, ongoing strife between China and Vietnam it doesn't help Cambodia. Laos has a slightly different developmental um, sort of backing in terms of retaining a lot of... Laos and Cambodia retains a lot of its French... Um, support, right, more so than Vietnam does. Um, and so cultural development-wise, it's quite fascinating to compare the three of them. And then uh -huh. Cambodia has this interesting relationship with, uh, you know, the tribunals of the Khmer Rouge. And um, so just around even NGO investment, you know, in the three countries, it's quite different. And so I'm kind of fascinated by Cambodia and Laos because I feel like there's the potential for them to develop differently than Vietnam. It's not too late. I mean, does that sound bad? No, not at all. No, that's interesting. <laughs> Tell us about what you think would be different and what would be better. What are the problems with Vietnamese development as you see it? Oh, in, you're in gonna 30 seconds get me or... banned from coming back into the country. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Um, well, it's just, you know, it's a post-socialist state that is still clinging very strongly to the sort of pre-war or, you know, um, rhetoric of communism and the family and the state and such that hasn't held up and it's already turned to a market economy and, you know, um, the WTO membership and it's, 
it's going through a lot of growing pains. I keep calling them growing right. pains. But it's affecting a lot of the cultural production that's taking place in the country as well as in the diasporic communities and the interaction between the overseas communities and transnational collaborations with countries like Korea, for example, are really feeding into the way it's going to continue to develop. So I feel like now is the time to affect any kind of intervention or change, whether it's in higher education in Vietnam or cultural development or cultural education. Now, you're the founding co-editor of the Journal of Vietnamese Studies. Right. That's and, and are still the editor, I think. Yes, we, we the other founding co-editor and I worked together for the first three years and then we decided to rotate every three years. So he went first, now I'm back at the helm with my um, chosen co-editor, Pam McElby, who's at Rutgers. Wonderful. Now, um, I want to get back to the stuff about Vietnam and cultural production and transnational exchanges, but I thought for a moment we could just uh, put ourselves to thinking about the, the nature of that journal and what you're trying to do and how it varies from classic area studies of the old-school developmentalist Ford Foundation kind, with which people may be familiar. We've what's gotten the, nice funding doing? from the Ford Foundation, oh, and okay. the Loose Foundation, and the Hillblom. Um, so yeah. I, I will be nice. Um, <laughs> but right. I just put my foot in it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm trying to be politic and diplomatic. So the um, yeah, early, you know, early or the last 100 years, 50 years of Vietnam studies scholarship has been very Cold War driven, very much from sort of the U.S. Um, State Department kind of side of scholarship and the Rand Corporation and such, and and that element is still there, and we want to retain some of that scholarship and look at it in more interesting ways, right, with different critical lenses, different positionalities and such, but also to kind of introduce the, the critical element of area studies and Asian studies and have sort of the newer forms and methodologies um, coming into play, the human rights uh, discourses, gender and sexuality, diasporic populations, um, just broadening this notion of what it means to do that's why we don't call it Vietnam Studies, it's called Vietnamese Studies, Journal of Vietnamese Studies. Um, there is a, a journal out of Australia, uh, Journal of Vietnamese Studies, that doesn't have quite the, the sort of wide uh, reception that we did. It was just prime time in the U.S. to have a Journal of Vietnamese Studies, because in terms of the other Southeast Asian uh, national sort of cultural coverage or scholarly coverage, it was sort of a moment where the amount of scholars in the field had reached a critical mass that could mount yeah, a self-sustaining journal. Yeah. Right. Now, in terms of expat or diasporic cultural production, where are most expats from Vietnam? I'd say the West Coast, the U.S. West Coast, but Australia, Canada, uh, France, um, more and more so Eastern Europe, you know, with the post-war um, labor migrations and such that we've seen more and more scholarship out of the Czech Republic, Poland, um, there's a small community of Vietnamese in Israel, uh -huh. So, but that was from the 1975. Um, but the, the, the migration to Eastern and Central Europe is not, po not about 75. Right. That's, you know, after the war, the country, Vietnam is economically a mess, right? So. They start um, 
entering uh, sort of eventual ties with the post-Soviet or Soviet countries yeah. in terms of labor. Yeah, interesting. And of course, Polish economy, Czech Republic economy, both doing okay in many ways, mm -hmm. especially the Polish economy. You know, in Britain, it used to be the, the joke in the not joke, but the truth in the early part of this century that all the plumbers were Polish. You couldn't get a plumber who wasn't a Pole. Now that the British economy is in the toilet, pardon the plumbing <laughs> metaphor being continued, metaphor. going with the flow, they've, a lot of them have gone back to Poland because they can make a better living there and they never developed interesting cultural ties for them, obviously, in the UK. So, so that's fascinating. Now, I guess I knew about Canada, the US, Australia. I didn't know about these other places. Oh, in France. I didn't know about these other places. I didn't know about Israel. And I didn't know about uh, Poland and the Czech Republic. Uh, in the internet era, is there more and more connection at an organic level between and across those communities? There is. And I mean, this is why I try to stay active on Facebook, because it's really much easier for me to uh, keep in touch and see what's going on in terms of not just the populations or demographics in these places, but the actual attempts at scholarship or cultural programming or things like that in yeah. those countries. And it's often youth driven, or I would say 20s, 30s, 40s um, folks who are you know, have kind of gotten to um, less professionally anxiety-producing places in their lives and are at a juncture where they're still curious and hungry for the, you know, new forms of scholarship. So, all right, let's think about the scholarship for the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the themes that these folks are picking up? And are they writing in Vietnamese and or English, or are they writing as well in... Polish and French and... All of the above. All of yeah. the above. Yeah. Well, you know, and I only have access to this Vietnamese, uh, French, English, um, and if anything is written in Spanish, but not so much, um, the scholarship in, in those languages. But the a lot of that existed, you know, prior to this kind of explosion and diasporic activity. It just did, happened in sort of ethnic media circles that the mainstream, say, in the U.S., don't really pay much attention to sure. until there's some sort of commemorative event, the 25th, 30th, 35th year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War or something. Then they go around and see how much progress we've made, you know, in terms of right, typical... Right. and that's it. So in terms of, say, TV stations, mm -hmm. um, here in Southern California... Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, And they, radio stations, too. Right. They, a lot of the... They've kind of monopolized, you know, uh, for better or worse, the the what are what began as sort of musical variety programming shows, these Paris by Night, Vincent, these uh, small corporations or diasporic companies that did uh, really just ethnic specific programming. Um, you see this in the Filipino community as well, Filipino Americans. Um, they, you know, accumulated so much money that they were able to mount uh, television broadcasts, uh, news stations, and now they're t they've taken over sort of cable channels and they've not only nationalized but internationalized and of course there's pushback from the state or in Vietnam as well but then they are also collaborating on a lot of programming they're collaborating as well because one thinks of Farsi the community here doesn't always like to talk about that because there's still a lot of anti-communist sentiment yeah 
One thinks of the Farsi TV stations mm -hmm. here in Southern California, which there are also many, right. and which are determinately anti-regime or government or whatever, right. and where I think there might be collaborations with the United States government <laughs> in some instances, yeah. but there certainly are, as far as I know, with the Iranian government. But you're saying that despite the very strongly anti-state socialist perspective of many diasporic Vietnamese here in California, there are sometimes threads of connection. Oh, there are many. People just play them down. I don't want to get into them. But I mean, I have colleagues in the field who will rhetoricize their work as being so cutting edge and difficult and controversial because they write about anti-communism or about, you know, these things are part of the life um, sort of embeddedness of being Vietnamese American. You can't not deal with those things. And they're not, I don't feel like they need to be as controversial as they are. Um, in terms of academic circles, of course, out in the community, there's Sure, I mean, I, I guess three groups that I think of in this light are Cuban Americans, uh, particularly in South Florida, mm -hmm. Vietnamese Americans in Southern California, and Iranians or Persians. Uh, Have you been watching the Shahs of Sunset? No, Bravo. tell me about that. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. What is that? Bravo is my, you know, sort of... Oh, because you love reality TV, I'm I don't sure. love it, but I feel like I learn so much vocabulary, like Real Housewives of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm just learning... I'm a Kardashian myself. I see myself as the Bruce Jenner of household. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> they all have the same hair. You know, just every single person on the show has the same hair. It never moves, at least the men's hair. The mom. So anyway, <laughs> uh, no, tell no? me about the show. <laughs> well, the Shahs of Sunset are about the Iranian community, Persian community, that immigrated as refugees for the most part, but then all settled in Beverly Hills. And, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine does a lot of um, consultancy work for local county governments and city governments and such. And, he was telling me that in Beverly Hills, there's a lot of uh, animosity or contention or tension between the wealthy sort of Persian older senior community and the white wealthy old money uh, Beverly Hills communities over cultural or ethnic programming, uh, what to do with the money for the community events there. Really? Yeah. And so, I mean, you, you can see how that play would play out if you saw sure, an episode. Sure. Not to promote Shaws of Sunset, but... I do find it fascinating that, you know, it's executive produced by Ryan Seacrest. How, I mean, how does he stay alive? That guy, <laughs> is he, I mean, he's, you can hear him on the radio from 5 to 9 in the morning. He's on television every night, and he's also doing his background jobs, which I guess just involves signing the odd check yeah. and getting quite a few of them. But even so... You know, this is going to be a bit non-sequitur, but I love Kathy Griffin, the uh -huh. comedian, because she's so vicious with Ryan Seacrest. But then the other day I was watching some rerun of uh, a piece she did where she was doing some Asian stereotype characterizations and her basically her only two frames of reference are little old Asian women at casinos who win money from her um, machine, slot, or a slot machine after yeah. she leaves it uh, from being cheap and uh, an impression she did of Tiger Woods' Thai mother who was so upset by the whole sex scandal. <laughs> and these are her two, you know, sort of Asian That's stereotypical kinds of reference, right? Well, even though one can rabbit on, as I often do, about how boring obsessions with representation are, the fact <laughs> yeah. is it's a pretty narrow band in mainstream English language 
Anglo-Saxon oriented and black and Latino oriented popular culture when it comes to representations of Asianness. I don't think that's a controversial statement, is it? No. I mean, I was listening to Jorge Mariscal's podcast with you, and right. he was saying similar things about Chicano Latinos in the U.S. And of course, you, if you watch, say, the Turner uh, classic uh, movies network, right, they did a series on Asian American cinema, or, or the early days of Asian American figures in cinema, and Peter Fang at University of Delaware was the guest host but it's been around forever I mean you just there's a long history of this kind of scholarship but in terms of visibility you see it I think I have a distorted view of Asian representation in the US pop culture because of all the kind of Facebook news feeds you're constantly getting about Jeremy Lin or you know what have you that I, I realize I need to kind of step back and Compare that to mainstream programming, which I, just, I often forget to do. I just noticed today he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people no, in the world. Already? Wow. And I think he's already faded from view after <laughs> bursting on the scene. Right. right. But yes, that, that is, it is fascinating. I mean, the absolute obsession with him. Well, it, it, was, it was more sad to me that folks were needed so much, um, you know, this need to kind of cling to some new Asian American figure. I mean, when I was growing up, I wanted to be Connie Chung, right? We, until the whole Maury Povich thing, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> that was, we had very few role Connie, models back then. Connie Chung uh, was a nightly news anchor on CBS right. News, I think both with Dan Rather and maybe on her own as well. Yeah, that and didn't go quite so well. That didn't go quite so well. I think Dan possibly not so keen on having Connie <laughs> sitting with him and who knows how she felt. And then she had a very high profile talk news show on, was it CNN? Yeah, and that didn't go so well. Which didn't well. go so well. And then she retired as a kind of screenaires, mm -hmm. no matter what, right? But she was a very important figure in the from the late 80s through to the late 90s, I'm thinking. Right. And it's somewhat faded from view since, but for a 10, 15 year period there, it was one of the principal people in television news in this country. Yeah? Reasonable to say? That's how I saw her yeah. anyway. No, no, certainly I did too. And yes, so she was a kind of important role model, the possibility of being there in the mainstream in the main view. And um, Marion, you, you weren't born in the United States, you uh, had mul you know, multiple migrations as a very young person, but you grew up here right. in Southern California, uh, partly in this Vietnamese community, but also as a, in a sense, a daughter of US popular culture. I oh, think it's one of the things so. that you know a lot about. <laughs> Are uh, you disturbed by it? No, by not at all. You know more about it than I do, but I would like to know more. Um, I mean, I think that that's one of the things you bring to bear on this. You have an outsider's perspective because of having been born elsewhere of parents who were migrants. Um, you have an insider perspective because of having grown up within it. And you have a hyphenated perspective because of your subjectivity and cultural background. Yeah, I'm really opposed to that hyphenation. <laughs> it's seen as a kind of old school approach to ethnic American studies, or, you know, American studies has dropped the hyphen as well because the assumption is that these are kind of distinct entities on both sides of the hyphen when if you say something like American or Asian, those are so loaded already with so much diversity and complexity within them that I just reviewed a proposal. I feel like I'm giving more money to other people that is not my own money than 
than I will ever receive in my lifetime <laughs> this quarter. But um, there was a, a proposal that was talking about Asian Anglophone a scholarship and hyphenating it um, at Berkeley. And I was just, I mean, the, the proposal didn't really elaborate on why, you know, so much the distinctions between Asian Anglophone and Asian American, other than it being in British English, or, or you know, that the yeah. texts were based in, not in the U.S., um, but still using the hyphen, even though it wasn't used in the Asian American descriptor. I think, so I think it, can, it can be complex, too, in terms of, I mean, to be boring, but the rules of British English about what happens when you create a compound adjective. <laughs> okay, right? you think when it's you put together, Well, you know, most publishers that right. are interested in either British English or... American academic English, when there are two adjectives put together to modify a noun, we'll want to hyphenate. Uh, I've had that corrected in my prose so often by publishing houses that I now do it automatically because... You, you include the hyphen automatically? I, I put the hyphen in simply because that's what they tell me to do. Um, and uh, it's become part of my discourse because of that. But these things change. I mean, for example, yeah. I mean, again, this is for trivia buffs, but the other day, um, what's called the Oxford comma was dropped. This is something that doesn't, isn't really used in, in English outside the United States, but it's where you've got a list of words with mm -hmm. commas and then an and. Now, in other forms of English, there's no final comma before the and. But in American English, there is, in academic English. Well, in junior high school in the U.S., you learned, if you had a good English teacher, that when it's a sequence of uh, phrases, then you do need the last final comma. Right. And if it's just single terms, then you don't need You don't. Them. Well, here's the thing. That's called the Oxford... I didn't even know this until the other day. That's called the Oxford comma. Well, Oxford just dropped it this month. Completely, even in Completely, phrases. In everything. So from now on, it'll be, as you say, a sequence of terms with commas until you get to the and, and there'll be no comma before the and. Sorry to rabbit, I know this is boring <laughs> to many people, but That's because okay. I've had to introduce these things into my writing right. over the time I've lived in the United States and published here, they've become part of my prose. But the point is they can change, the dropping of the Oxford comma, yeah. and no doubt there, will, there probably are already struggles over utilizing that hyphen that right. refers to. Well, I feel like with the punctuation, I'm fine with being, I, I mean, it doesn't really affect the conceptual or intellectual kind of production of the sentence or the concept, but with the hyphen, I think it touches upon so many kind of, you know, identity politics and subject formations and disciplinary formations that I think it's important to push for. So because I do so much sort of copy editing with the journal and with these other collections and stuff, anthologies, I, every time, I mean, even with my co-editors and stuff, I have to mount this kind of discussion about the hyphen or not and sure. with my students and things like that. But I feel like it's important to kind of get past some of that. So, Can you explain that in a little more detail for me? In terms of the history of the hyphen? What are the assumptions that come in and out of the use of the hyphen? Well, in a sort of early ethnic studies days, right, the, you, you had the hyphen to express or assert biculturality, right? That you weren't just a foreigner, an immigrant, a refugee to the state, even if you're your fourth generation Japanese American, right? So it was to emphasize that you were indeed American. So that you, yes, you grow up with a lot of U.S. pop culture if you're born here or 1.5 generation or what have you, but 
you also grow up with a lot of the, say, Asian culture, and that Asian culture is already a colonized, uh, you know, um, complex amalgamation of Asianness, right? And so that already includes Western uh, sort of introductions embedded within that Asianness, and so. Um, but that doesn't start to sort of get um, complexified or what have you until much later in Asian American studies discourse or ethnic studies discourse, I would say about 15 years later. And so once you start having, you know, Lisa Lowe's work on heterogeneity and multiplicity and, and such, that, then it, and it wasn't just about Homi Baba's hybridity and ambivalence and stuff, because that's all the mainstream likes to quote in terms of post-coloniality and um, Creative theoretical uses of ethnic studies, right? So um, I'm not a big homie Baba fan. So uh, the the sort of later conceptual reworkings or tinkerings with this hyphenation, I feel, are much more complex and accurate um, models of what critical ethnic studies should be. And because ethnic studies itself is now so global, like what does it mean to do ethnic studies in Brazil? You know, Denise De Silva's work versus ethnic studies in the U.S., right, so. I think the hyphen keeps us, holds us back. No, thank you, that's very helpful, that's very helpful. So, getting back to this question of cultural production, uh, give us a run-through what you see as being the forms and the genres where this is happening for either diasporic or resident Vietnamese culture. What's the stuff resident that you're looking in, at for people who Vietnam. live in Vietnam? It's non-diasporic <laughs> Vietnamese. Native. What's the stuff that you look at that interests you? Well, I, you know, I mean, I was trained as a literature person, but um, was always doing film and pop culture and um, some visual arts, but I feel like I haven't gotten the visual arts training until this summer I'm doing an NEH thing at NYU that Margot Machida and Alexander Chang are running, so um, that should be good. I f I'll feel more well-rounded after that. Um, but lately I've been looking more, I think when I went through grad school I was very much trained in a continental philosophy kind of uh, program and then I had to do all my ethnic studies sort of informally and then I had to do political economy barely, you know. I, I remember at Irvine in Comp Lit, uh, uh, University of California, Irvine, where Mariam did her PhD. Yes, I'm sorry, which was then known as a kind of theory haven. Critical theory. Right, critical Leotard theory. Leotard was mm -hmm. there, Derrida Derrida, was there. Valley Barn, Steve Ackleader. Then, um, a couple of the grad students I remember in this organization called Grad Students of Color Collective, Jisak Wilson Chen in particular, had to devise his own sort of cultural studies uh, syllabus that he ran by Ray Chow and Ian Chambers, who was visiting at the time. And then the grad students who were interested just kind of had to do it on their own, right? Which was a kind of depressing thought in terms of cultural studies development at a very theory-heavy um, campus. And so... By the time I got to sort of junior faculty years and stuff, I felt like I was so much more interested in sort of publication industries, film industries, you know, all the sort of infrastructural models that feed into what kinds of representation you can talk about. And I was kind of tired of talking about representation. The, the trees as well as the teal. Exactly. <laughs> well, the exactly. trees as well as the shins. 
But you know, I I realized that when you do that kind of writing, you alienate or people the people who do the representation work stop reading your thing because they feel like, oh, actually they'll they use it for background material, right? Because they can't do their work without our work. But then they never cite you, or they you know they kind of imagine that it's all uh, not uh, you know. And on the knowledge. other side, frequently political economy people read very little of representational <laughs> critique. Yeah. Uh, don't take account of it and dismiss it when exactly. they do refer to it. So it is a, it remains a bit of a dialogue of the deaf, as mm -hmm. the saying goes. Apologies to set your orally disabled listeners. <laughs> but, you know, it's where uh, perhaps we could say ships pass it. Right. Uh, you know, things are thrown at one another, but by and large, uh, they back off. But yes, I think that's true. But that sorry, I, to, just to finish answering yeah. your question, because I didn't really answer it. Yeah. So I've been looking at the kind of industrial development, but then also things like ethnic media or higher education development that then participate in the kind of aftermath of the cultural production as well in terms of circulation and uh, reception. So I've been, I've just been, you know, because it's relatively new uh, to me, I felt like I've spent the last five, six years training myself in that kind of scholarship. And you have taught yourself, because it's... This is one of the things that's interesting. You mentioned going to this summer school that you're going to be <laughs> attending uh, this northern summer, because it's not that easy or straightforward for people who are academics to undergo a formal retraining. Mm -hmm. Apart from anything else, they have to lose, lose a bit of ego. Yeah, I think that's why I'll enjoy it because, you know, I'm not, I'm quite bad at self-promotion and so I warned you that I sound like a 12-year-old in audio <laughs> when you invited me to do this podcast. Um, but I feel like, you know, the the best pieces, the best podcast pieces that I listen to in, on your archive were things like the George Lewis, Cecilia Alvear piece, where you felt like you were getting history when you were listening to them talking over their meal and their careers. And so I feel like so much of my training and my career and my immigration process and my personal history and my family history and all of that has, has just been sort of a figure of a kind of larger global history that I would be more interested, or I imagine your listeners would be more interested in sort of living through, you know, in terms of the perspective of one, you know, uh, person, hypothetical person, as opposed to kind of delving into my scholarship very deeply. And so when I, when I, I'm so curious because whenever I sort of finish a project or I get uh, um, inquisitive about a new area, I feel like I have to do all this major work to catch myself up in the topic or in the theme. And so this summer school thing is actually pretty intimidating because it's five days a week and you only get Wednesdays and Sundays off and they gave us a seven page reading list, advanced reading list that we were supposed to have done uh, before we got How there. How many weeks? Three weeks in July at NYU. July in New York. I know. A lot of time to be there. And what's, what's the theme again? It's about visual culture or art? Yeah, a kind of history of American art, but with an Asian-American uh, historical sort of... Is it through the Institute for Fine Arts? It's run with NEH money, National Endowment of, for the Humanities money, as well as some co-partnerships and sponsorships from the Asian Pacific American Institute at NYU. Oh, so it probably isn't the Institute for Fine Arts. No, but all of the curators and the speakers and the co-conveners are very entrenched in the fine arts uh, they, yeah. collective 
Well, as you say, that's a great opportunity to get the inside story on how they see the world, mm-hmm. which is also, of course, partly how the world is made because of the importance of that rhetoric for what counts as art and how art circulates and is itself created. So, thinking about this interest in industries then for a moment, what is the, what's the, the story with production in Vietnam in terms of film, TV, music, so what, what kind of map would you draw for us? Um, well, there's a lot of, you know, transnational collaborations and such, not just between the diasporic uh, directors, screenwriters, um, talent and such, but all, that are, some have moved back to Vietnam, some work transnationally and such. That has kind of reinvigorated the, say, film, specifically the film development in Vietnam, right? where it's encouraged the local native domestic film industry and state to actually, well, I'm not sure if they're investing much more money, they're investing money in certain projects, but they're definitely paying more national attention to it because they realize it's big on the international cultural, yeah. you know, global capital scene. So the state is also using the film industry to further its own economic ends, but in doing so, at least it's promoting the, the form itself in a way that is not completely controlled by the state because they can't because it has all this foreign investment. So one of the side projects I, I've been working on is all this, all this Korean Vietnamese co-production that's happening. So Korea has, you know, basically taken over all the mega cinemaplexes and such in Vietnam, and so they have great power. Not just because Korean pop culture is, you know, popular and rampant all over Southeast Asia. And the Korean rest of the world. wave. Exactly, um, but the and the tourism in, in Southeast Asia as well. But that they're actually investing money in training a lot of the televisual broadcast um, industry in Vietnam as well as the. Um, co-producing films and that kind of thing, all often around genre appeal like horror or um, you know romantic comedy that kind of thing. But but the the training is what I find fascinating. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> well, just I'm, it's very preliminary. But the kinds of, um, for example, let's say soap operas, right? So yeah. if you have the sort of Korean companies backing the local domestic talent or, you know, production crews and such, there's so much, the Vietnamese are very um, haphazard in terms of their labor practices, there isn't a lot of policy in place, they're, you know, as in most developing countries, um, and so, you know, and Korean um, corporations are known to be much more authoritarian and disciplinarian, so in some ways it's a, it's a good thing for the training, but then in, in what I like about it is that it's forcing the Vietnamese and the state to, to sort of look at cultural uh, policy and cultural production differently, but at the same time, you know, you worry, so then what happens after all this training? Is there going to be another migration, uh, labor migration to Korea of these sort of Southeast Asians? Um, doing the bidding of the Korean wave and the globalization of the Korean wave. Right. So, well, you've gotten all this investment, some of it by Korean money, but some of it by public money in Vietnam into Vietnamese talent mm-hmm. that then staggers off happily right. to Seoul or wherever yeah. and is never seen again. Yeah. 
So I tried to trace a lot of the interest um, between Korea and Vietnam in, in the one piece that's coming out next year with Duke. Uh, the, the, it's, um, it's fascinating because, you know, during the Vietnam War, there were Korean mercenaries that were there to fight along with the U.S. and such, right? And so in Korea, you have, uh, starting in the 80s and much more so in the 90s, though, you had this kind of anxiety and um, guilt, national guilt, about the, the part that South Korea played in um, the Vietnam War. And so the people, you know, would start some petitions and stuff wanting the Korean government to apologize to the Vietnamese government. So when I go to conferences and such in Korea, I'll get questions like, how do the Vietnamese people feel about Korea? You know, or, you know, and I have to tell them things like, well, you know, actually, because the economic relationship is going so well, they'd much rather have an apology from Obama to Vietnam, which I hope actually doesn't happen because that is so loaded at this point. Um, that I feel bad telling, you know, sort of my Korean colleagues and artists and such that 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 isn't sort of necessarily a, a priority anymore because economic relations are very good, quite good between Korea and Vietnam. But then you have new sort of socio-economic and um, realities that or material realities that are affecting this interest in Vietnam by Korea. So you have all these Vietnamese brides, right, international brides and, uh, that go to Korea and other parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia that um, have now become a kind of sociological phenomenon in South Korea. And so you have documentary films being made by local community-based organizations and NGOs in Korea, some partially funded by the state to help the plight of these women, right? And then so you have films, documentary films, uh, and a, a kind of a mini-series soap opera called The Gold, Golden Bride about one such... Uh, Golden Bride, what, how, do you, how do you say it in Vietnamese? Go uh, Yao Bang. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> um, but uh, so the, the kinds of interests are not just about pho noodle soup, you know, um, and Korean pho noodle stalls, but it's it's deeper. I mean, it's more yeah, sort of sociological. Now, shifting a few degrees across the map, you once took me to Little Saigon. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? You and Marie. And Marie. And I wondered if, especially because, as I said, most listeners are outside the United States, if you could tell people a little bit about what the Saigon is, because it's an interesting example of something that is about everyday life and popular culture, but not at the uh, grandiose level, as it were, of a film industry or mm -hmm. a television network. It is quite now, these days, a hub of that kind of... Um, industrial, so it is a, a locus or of such these days, but in its inception it very much developed like any other ethnic enclave in the U.S., you know, the Chinese Americans in different parts, Monterey Park and such before that, but you know, in terms of say the little Saigon in, in Southern California, which yes, is the, the physical location, how biggest it started, one. what it is. Yeah. Right. Um, it very much started in the late 70s, right, early 80s to kind of fulfill the needs of these immigrants who wanted connections or news updates, right, of what was going on in the post-war uh, period with re-education camps and um, the new regime and what was going on with their relatives back home, right? But then it very much, very quickly turned into a kind of economic niche and um, sort of uh, social assistance programming and 
remittances. And, uh, so over time, though, you know, the sense of loss of the nation and loss of your homeland and stuff, of course, ends up getting replicated onto the space of the, the, this particular ethnic enclave, where um, then part and parcel with the kind of anti-communism because of the boat refugee experiences and the re-education camps that took place in Vietnam, you start, uh, the, the community itself becomes this uh, center for a very specific form of kind of political activism as well, right? Which, uh, of course, in the sort of U.S. leftist or, you know, liberal discourse is very backward and, um, you know, the kind of rhetoric you get from mainstream press around any of these anti-communist protests are all about, oh, they don't get Americans freedom of liberty and democracy, freedom of speech, right? They're trying to do exactly what, you know, they're claiming the communists did to them and such. And I feel like that's such a simplistic, you know, oh, let's just um, pathologize them. They don't get it. They're crazy immigrants and uh, foreigners and they just don't understand these American ways. And some of my colleagues participate in this kind of neoliberal re-rhetorization of their own so-called people, right? And if you don't want to participate in the critique, in that kind of critique, then they think you're somehow self-censoring or silencing yourself. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, Vietnamese American studies is a bag of worms or what have you So, electorally, this group around the Saigon, the little Saigon of Southern California, not far from Los Angeles, is seen as a Republican party. Oh yes, it's a strong. Party. It's becoming less so in the last ten years. But, for example, in the Gore Bush uh, campaign elections, right, the Asian Pacific Americans realized that if you there was this 80-20 initiative where they realized if they could get 80 percent of API identified voters to vote one way, that would swing the national vote. So the, the 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 agenda was to vote Gore all the way, right? And you know what a debacle that election was for so many reasons. But um, in the aftermath, once the statistics came out, the two ethnic Asian communities, Asian American communities that did not sort of follow the agenda were the Vietnamese Americans and Korean Americans. You know, so of course embarrassing for those of us <laughs> who um, a bit more were not so But it is, it is interesting, just diverging onto that for a moment, the way in which there is this obsession with the Latino vote mm -hmm. uh, here in the United States in this election year, but always, as well as how to sell to them. And then there's a counter discourse which says this is not one block, it's lots of different sorts mm -hmm. of people. Asian Americans don't get talked about in the ad Barely industry enough. or in the politics right. consulting industry in the same way. There's they? a perception that they aren't as active in terms of electoral politics and just, you know, kind of apathetic coming from. Um, national histories where they didn't trust the government, right, and so yeah. they don't feel a great need to participate. And so we have all these rock the vote campaigns within the API communities and stuff every, you know, a few years before election year and throughout election year. But I feel like even, you know, those of us who, you know, think we're somewhat radical or politically progressive don't really talk, of, we're so busy criticizing, you know, electoral politics in the U.S. Uh, politics that we forget, you know, it's still important to kind of do this kind of... Uh, and for people outside the U.S., you mentioned it a couple of times, API? Oh, I'm sorry, Asian Pacific Islander, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders right. in the U.S. <laughs> uh, now, just getting back to Little Saigon here in Southern California, we're, we're speaking, by the way, in a, I think, very wonderful coffee shop 
called Back to the Grind uh, in Riverside, California, which had a very enjoyable open mic night, mm. open microphone night yesterday evening, which I enjoyed. Uh, You've been in town for all... I've been in town since Sunday. In there town, was, literally, in Riverside? Mm-hmm. There was a, an external review committee oh. here to evaluate my department's oh. undergraduate degree. Well, I say my department, I mean our department's <laughs> right. undergraduate degree, but it's not as though I own it in any sense. And so I decided that I should be here throughout so that I could be available to members of the committee or call. the Senate or whatever at any moment to participate. In any event, getting back to the place not very many kilometres down the road that is the Saigon, uh, you mentioned that nowadays it is a hub for conventional bourgeois professional cultural production, if I can <laughs> use a, a short version of something that you could just understand as making TV and cinema. And right, music. but also kind of cultural activist work around there. There are a lot of community-based organizations, Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association, you know, that is based there, that does a lot of, the biggest sort of ethnic uh, media, ethnic newspapers are based there. And so they, together, they actually generate a lot of pushback against just general cultural industrial development in, in many ways that are actually more global in terms of their reach um, and social networking, you know, so. Tell us a bit about that about the sorts of things those people are doing that reach out internationally. Yeah, the you know some of the uh, f- key figures in the community who run these organizations are very good at keeping their uh, radars out, right? And because they've become known as sort of centers for this kind of work, um, people come to them. And so it's, it's a nice way of keeping all the sort of global ethnic enclave cultural production networks um, in communication with one another. That's been nice. Of course, you know, as an academic, I get a little nervous about some of that as well because there's this very, or less critical kind of acceptance of sort of any kind of cultural production by, say, Vietnamese diasporics anywhere or Vietnamese. And, you know, of course, all cultural production is not good or progressive and that kind of thing. So it's it's hard when you work in those circles of kind of generating support and ethnic community support, but then also wanting to be... We need another hero. We don't need another hero. <laughs> we need yeah. another heroine. We don't need another heroine. Right. right? Right. So yes, these things are worth having, but then the idea of an automatic embrace that comes from a shared cultural subjectivity, mm-hmm. as per the Jeremy Lin story, right. can produce its own problems and contradictions. Yeah, I've learned over the years just with my own work that I just don't need to talk about the bad stuff. I can just write about the good stuff. That's the nicest thing I could do <laughs> to the bad for the with the bad stuff. <laughs> now let's just talk for a moment about your own work. I know you said that you find this boring when listening to others, but no, me, I didn't say I found it boring, I just thought less you know. interesting. Trust me, there are there are some people out there who actually want to know how you got to be you. Okay. You know, when I was in Singapore, they, they, they wanted us to do two talks, and one was a what they called the In the Beginning talk, which was all about your personal and intellectual trajectory, okay. how you came to be what you are. Genesis. And, um, yes. Very biblical. And the other one was um, your actual research talk, and I got out of the In the Beginning talk, but I see you're making me reproduce it here. <laughs> 
so... Look, this, this podcast is more authoritarian than even Lee Kuan Yew's Singapore was. Mm -hmm. There's no chewing of gum in this podcast. <laughs> and everyone does military service. And I'm not allowed to say totally or like. <laughs> you are, in fact, prohibited. I must say, for a SoCal gal, you are pretty good at avoiding valley girl talk, <laughs> at least in my opinion. I had to work on that. My seventh grade English teacher <laughs> sat me down yes. and said, Miriam, you're smart, but you don't sound it all the time. You need to stop it. So. Valley girl, valley girl. <laughs> uh, so I was born in Vietnam. I'm actually an, a quarter Indian, South Asian, and um, some Chinese on my father's side, the Indians on my mother's side. But um, my father had to leave in 75 at the end of the war. It was safer for him to go. Um, and my mother didn't want to leave her family yet, so we stayed until another year or so and she couldn't handle the new regime and so she wanted to leave but then at that point they wouldn't let anyone out of the country especially if you had some connection to the u.s so luckily because she was half indian my maternal grandfather helped us um, get our indian passport papers together and we went to india and we lived there for about a year before my father was able to sponsor us over to jacksonville florida um, he got to talk to Ted Kennedy, like, office, and he's a good guy. But um, then, of course, secondary migration to Southern California, just because they're, they heard about the paradise of Asian food and tropical climate. <laughs> and so um, settled in Southern California. So you've lived in three countries by the time you're about five years old. Yeah, all sort of Southern, you know, people make fun of SoCal and Southern Californians, but... I'm sort of quadruply impaired, Southern Vietnamese, Southern Chinese, Southern Indian, and Southern California. Most of all, though, Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> I'm going to claim that as being part of the Global South. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's massive disruption in the family, as there was in, and still is in so many families. Mm -hmm. Great emotional pain, loss of all sorts of things position, power, money, yeah. that comes with these dislocations. Right. You know, and when you're, re you, the, when you, you think, you know, going through graduate training, you're, you need to kind of set that aside and be somewhat objective about scholarship. And I remember when my editor of the first monograph had me revising my introduction, he really wanted me to move up this anecdote that I had had where I went to the, um, what's now called the Reunifi Reunification Palace in Vietnam, which was the presidential palace before 75. And we're in the basement museum, and um, we're staring at this. Uh, it's like a trophy of the assassinations of Ngo Dinh Yim and Ngo Dinh Yu, the brothers, right? And um, Which was the CIA-sponsored assassination <laughs> Right, in, in collaboration with yeah, the North and such. And so... But the staging of the two bodies was just fascinating to me. And so I, you know, pe people kind of just treat the sort of Republic of Vietnam as this puppet government and such. And even when I was listening to George Lewis's comments about um, what it was like to be in Vietnam and the perspectives, and, and even when Jorge said that that woman sitting next to him in Vietnam said, we don't want your help, right? Or these kinds of um, snippets or sound bites are still very much a kind of um, U.S. lens through which we we, we see the, the sort of other players of that war. And so so much of my work has been about kind of telling the, the sides we haven't sort of delved very much into. And so for 
decentering the United States. Right. So not calling it the American War in Vietnam. Which some which of my Vietnamese American scholars love because they sound so progressive American, uh, but it's not actually. It's re, you know, it's again decentering this kind of civil war onto yeah. the you know goals of the U.S. Right. But so in terms of. Um, that anecdote, I mean, I, I likened it to what it, the, the period when JFK and uh, Robert Kennedy sort of were assassinated, sort of back to back. And the Ngo Dinh Yim and Ngo Dinh Yu assassinations are within one year of the Kennedy, you know, assassinations. And so just the, the, if, if there's one way to kind of reinsert the other history back in, it was, kind of, it was a, you know, kind of nice moment to do that. And I, I was... I was really happy the editor asked me to move that up because I had I had never thought to do that. So the editor won in this discussion. It was it wasn't a, a debate or anything. He he had a great. And what's the name of the book? Um, not coming to terms, Vietnam, post trauma and cultural politics. Not coming to terms. And who's the publisher? Duke, uh, University Press, Ken Whistaker. Tobacco UP. <laughs> <laughs> A great, a great press that does wonderful books. Now, we've only got about three minutes left. I'm wondering if in that time you could just tell us a little bit about that book, roughly what's in it, and maybe the next project. Okay, that book is, um, it, in, I'm, I'm sort of looking at the way, I'm looking at the US, France, and Vietnam, post-75 cultural production, and I'm looking at the ways, um, there are these the politics around the Cold War and French coloniality and such affect the the kind of cultural industries and literature and film and discipline higher education academic scholarship about Vietnam and how these have uh, played out on what kinds of um, texts and scholarship has been produced in, in the aftermath and so the, it's sort of around notions of what I'm calling precariat reckoning um, and then also a, notion, a kind of strategic affect that I feel like these diasporic populations are using that doesn't get treated as very strategic, right? So then um, it's divided into four chapters thematically around diaspora, the post-colony, post-socialism, and disciplinarity. And um, each one based in a, a kind of, uh, the first three in different national contexts. Uh, mainstream wow. minority politics. And then, <laughs> one would think this would be a lifetime's work rather than one book. It Amazing. felt like it, and it took me long enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second project, I'm, I'm juggling a few things right now. The second one is, you know, that one I told you about in terms of, um, I really wanted to use the title Surfing Vietnam for some reason. It's, Surfing Vietnam. That was my dissertation title, and so I put so, it on the second book and looking at... Um, new circulations of, of post-Cold War global capital, specifically Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And then because you work on uh, sort of Southeast Asia, less developed countries, or I get asked to write things like film books on Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Or, and then, but one of my, I'm currently really in love with this new project that we're submitting to um, David Yu and Russell Leong, who have this book series uh, with the University of Hawaii Press and the UCLA Asian American Studies Center around uh, it's called Undercurrents, uh, Transnational Southeast Asian, uh, wait, Southeast Asian Transnational and Diasporic Cultures. And I'm, I'm promoting all these kind of junior, younger scholars and advanced grad students. And they're doing stuff on Burma and Cambodia and Hmong. And it's, I'm, I'm excited about that one. And this would be an edited volume? Right. 
and drawing on a lot of these folks. What is the, and just to finish off, where, what's your catchment area for the authors for that? Where do they come from? Well, you know, the second part of the personal biography we didn't get to was being in the field of Southeast Asian and Southeast Asian diasporic studies, you have to craft the field. So, so much of my work has been institution building, right, and has been mentoring junior people. And so I have, you know, two or three longtime collaborators and partners um, who together we've really nurtured, I feel like we've really done a good job of nurturing these, you know, one-time undergrads, then grad students, and now junior faculty and, you know, um, nearing tenure, a few of them. And so that work has, you know, you end up going to way too many conferences and participating in way too much service before your tenure years and all that stuff that, you know, dragged down or slowed down my sort of professional development. But it's been really rewarding and you feel like you're not just paying lip service like some people in our respective fields do, but you're actually really living it. And so that's where I met a lot of these junior scholars in these kinds of circles, you know, in D.C. at AAAS. Or, and then they introduce you to their friends or their, you know, peers and Snowballing effect of connection. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I should say, folks, that from my limited knowledge of Marion's networking, it is astonishing how much she does <laughs> and how selfless a lot of this is. Of course, it then can come back both to bite you in the bum oh, unpleasantly yeah. and bite you in the bum pleasantly. <laughs> they can be good things to this eventually. Right. There can be a lot of sacrifice, but then there comes the opportunity to see the benefits of what you've generated as per this project. That you yeah, and some of the outcomes are unexpected. Like some of, I'm sorry, I know you're trying to wrap up right, but some of the things you think that happened to you along the way that were completely astonishing and shocking and meant to kind of hurt your professional careers and stuff actually had have a way of reasserting how well you've done in your career, that you have established people who know you well enough to know your professional reputation and stuff. And we'll speak up for you yeah, exactly. when the crisis comes. <laughs> Precisely. Absolutely, because the fact is if you're a founder of discursivity, or one of a few, then the Can chances... I write that on my business card? <laughs> I think your business card is crafted from those very letters, founders of discursivity. In addition to all the plaudits and the opportunities come lots of problems um, and lots of months and even years dedicated in a way that is about invisible labor and you know it's amazing what you've achieved so Miriam, i want to ask you if you'll come back into the pod again maybe when you've either finished the second monograph mm -hmm. or when you've completed the editing process sure i'd be delighted that'd be great thank Thanks. you